chapter 2, let me say this morning, if you're here and this you are a first-time guest, there is a, in the, at the end of your pew, there's a rack, we'll have a card like this in it. Please take a minute, fill that information out, and if you would, at the end of the service, um, meet me in the Welcome Center by our main parking lot, and I, would, I have a gift I would like to give you on behalf of our church. Revelation chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. We continue looking at the seven letters of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. These are encouragements and warnings for churches, not only then, but for us now where we live today. So this morning, in honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand as we read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17? God's word says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Open our hearts and minds to be receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. I loved singing the song that we sang just a few minutes ago, the I Believe song. And it's just so wonderful sometimes to go through those litany of things there in the song that we believe, that make us distinct from other religions, that make us distinct in what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a wonderful, I've, I've told Darren before, if, if, it was, if, if we sang what I like every Sunday, we'd sing the doxology every Sunday. But I'm a little old-fashioned when it comes to music, so I enjoy singing, I believe. Jack Graham is one of our leading pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. Jack Graham pastors a church in the Fort Worth area, Prestonwood Baptist Church. And in the past couple of months, Dr. Graham has took a stand on some political issues, uh, some political issues that are also moral issues. And because of the stand that he has taken and the support that he has given to some people, there's a newspaper in Texas that is really taking him to task over using his position as a minister and using his pulpit to declare these things. Now, this newspaper has gone as far as to look at the demographics of the area where Dr. Graham's church is. And they have written articles about the education level of the people who live in the area where Prestonwood Baptist Church is. And what they say is, through these articles, they say that the people who live around Prestonwood Baptist Church are an educated group of people and that because of their education, 
they won't continue to tolerate the teaching and preaching of someone who is taking the stands that Dr. Graham is taking. And so they've written a, a couple of articles here lately, and they've talked about um, him, and they've talked about how his church uh, operates and what it does and where they are, and they've talked about how it doesn't fit in a society. The teachings of, that they're teaching don't fit into a society as we have today. And I love this, what Dr. Graham said about how Prestonwood has grown to the place that it is today. It's a large church there. It has multiple campuses uh, uh, there around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, area. And they asked him, someone asked him recently in light of the articles that are being written about him in the church, how does your church continue to grow and how does it minister? And he said this, he said, whatever you win people with is what you have to do to keep people with you. In other words, in this time of, of church becoming more like the culture and church becoming more like the world, Dr. Jack Graham says, I simply go to the pulpit and I open the Bible and I explain God's word as it's written. And he said, because that when someone comes to Christ in our church and someone comes, becomes a part of our church, they're not looking for flashing lights or ringing bells. They're not looking for anything outside of someone explaining to them God's word and how it applies to their life. Now, we look at a church this morning in Pergamum. Pergamum is the third church geographically that the letters are sent to from Jesus. John the Revelator, John the Beloved, wrote these letters, and geographically the letter would obviously go next from Smyrna to Pergamon. And the church that we're looking at here this morning, Jesus tells them the truth about the false hope of sin and their need to repent or change. And he tells them about the truth of a real relationship and intimacy with God the Father. In his words, what he's saying here is that sin always promises, but sin never pays. There's never a reward for living a sinful life. Sin disguises itself as something really attractive, something refreshing, something rewarding. But underneath the false exterior, sin is always filthy. Sin is always dirty. Sin is always foul. And those who participate it will only know a life of regret as a result. I deal with a lot of people uh, through ministry in our community. I deal with a lot of people who are in desperate need, who are in help, uh, in need of help in need of the basics of life. And in the past few years, I have found more and more I deal with people who at one point in life uh, were, were doing well. They were, they were living a good life, and they had what they needed to make it through this life. But somewhere in this world, something happened, and they needed to escape. There was a point in their life where they needed to escape, or they needed to numb themselves, and they needed to just escape what was going on, and more and more I see these people who have brought themselves to a place of addiction where there's no hope of escaping the grip of that addiction in their minds other than continuing to use and abuse or to take their own life. And, and I see these people and I, and I know that there was a point where this was just a recreational thing or this was just a thing that they thought they could control and there was a point to where that sin 
and that need to fulfill something in their life became greater than them and took control of their life. And that's what, uh, with all sin, it happens that way. And, And Jesus is trying to convince this church here in Pergamum, never, ever flirt with evil. Always stay away from evil, flee from evil, and never get involved. And he's exposing the false exterior of sin. He's pulling it back so that these people can see sin for what it is. He's addressing the the believers there. and, and, And through his writing, we see that these people are probably flirting with evil. They're probably skirting and, and spending some time in some practices that they shouldn't. Now, from the writing of, of John here, it seems that they're not openly embracing it. They're not publicly saying we condone these sins, but they're not closing the door to these sins either. They're also not publicly condemning these sins and saying that these things are wrong. So Jesus calls them to repent of the teachings Uh, especially of the Nicolaitans that we saw last week that he commended the Ephesians for hating their teaching. So Jesus continues here, and we see the takeaway, and he tells them this, I know that you are living in the enemy's stronghold. Jesus always introduces himself in these letters. He introduces himself in a way to where he reveals his glory, and he tells them immediately that I am God. I am God the Son, I have authority over these churches, and in this letter it's no different. He describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In in Revelation 1.16, John had introduced Jesus in glory, and he said from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The reality of this happens in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 15, when we see the judgment of Jesus, where it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So we know that this sharp two-edged sword that is described here is probably an image of judgment. And that's not the Jesus of our popular culture that we see today. Jesus is not seen as a, a Jesus of judgment, but this is how John describes him in more than one case in Revelation. Now, We understand this to mean that someday Jesus is going to speak decisive words of judgment. And the sword here is relevant to the people who live in Pergamon. Because under the Roman society in which they live, the sword is held over them and it is a constant reminder to them that they live under the authority of the Roman government and if they oppose the Roman government, then they will surely meet a swift end through the sword of the Roman government. It's a very threatening image. But Jesus is saying here, John's writing tells us, Jesus is assuring the church at Pergamum, I am greater than the government of Rome. I am greater than what you see around you and the judgment that you see around you and that I have complete authority over everyone and everything And the sword of judgment that comes from my mouth will strike down the idolatry of Rome someday. And it comes to a place where we ask ourselves a uh, question as a modern church. Whose judgment do we fear? Now the Christian in John's audience that he's writing to here, they could avoid the sword of Rome if they did things that would put them in danger of the sword of Jesus. 
Now, we all face situations where what the world judges to be right conflicts with what Jesus judges to be right. Every one of us faces those situations. We know this ever increasing in our day. You've never seen me with this Bible because I left my Bible at home this morning. That's the confession from your preacher. And I, I feel like I have lost a million dollars. I know right where it's sitting, and it's driving me crazy that it's not in my hand. I had to grab another Bible. Confessions from the pulpit. But we know this morning, we know for certain, if we believe this, if we believe this to be the infallible, uncorruptible Word of God, if we believe that this is true, that everything in this book it still holds as true as it did the day that it was written, if we believe the things that we sang earlier, that there is a virgin birth, that there was a resurrection, that Jesus is coming again, then we fly in the face of everything that this society teaches, and we are told that we believe in myths, we're told that we're bigoted, we're told that we're hateful, we're told that we're intolerant, all of these things, and we're told this by the society that we live in because they want us to be silent and not to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want us to feel out of place and out of touch to the point to where we stop preaching and teaching what God's word said. The sword of the world and the judgment of the world might inflict or the sharp two-edged sword in the mouth of the Son of Man these are the judgments that we face. And we have to respect, as Christians, we have to respect the sharp two-edged sword judgment of Jesus Christ. Jesus said these words to his disciples, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Right now, Jesus Christ is before the Father, and the things that I prayed about this morning, Jesus Christ is praying about those things for me. I never want to put myself in a place where Jesus goes before the Father and says, I, he, He's denied me, so I, I just don't really know. I never want to put myself in a place to where I have chosen the things of the world more than I have Jesus because I'm depending on Jesus to be my advocate with the Father. Now, Jesus begins his address to the church with a strong commendation of the church. This church is doing a lot of things right, and Jesus points out the fact you live in the worst neighborhood in Asia Minor. You live in the worst place that you could live and, and try to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be the worst of the, of the seven cities. Revelation 2.13 opens. Jesus always begins with these words, I know. And he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And the last words of that verse are among you where Satan dwells. Last week, we know that Jesus exposed Satan for being behind the persecution that the Christians were facing. And this week, again, we see where Jesus exposes the work of Satan. Now, in those references, he says, in spite of the bad influence of where you live, you are holding fast to my name. You're not denying my faith. Even when you saw Antipas, you saw him martyred, you saw him killed because of his witness, you didn't deny me. So in spite of where they live and in spite of what's going on around them, they're still holding fast to the name of Jesus. And that they hold fast to Jesus' name 
means that they are conducting themselves for, the, for Jesus' glory. In other words, they're living their lives in such a way that Jesus can get glory from how they're living. And he commends them for it. But then he says, he tells them again, he, he commends them, he says, you are standing steadfast. You are standing steadfast. I thought about that. I preach a lot of funerals. And you know what? The, the best thing, you can say a lot of good things about people who've passed away. I've had families pull me in before the funeral and say, Be, don't, don't say anything bad about our, our relative. And I, I'm thinking, what? Well, why would I come here and say something bad about your relative? I'm here to comfort you. And there are a lot of good things that you can say about people. But you know what? One of the greatest things you can say about a Christian, they were faithful to the end. They were steadfast in their life. They stood for something when others didn't stand for anything. They stood on the word of God and they were steadfast and their witness and their testimony was strong. Jesus is commending the church in Pergamum. He's saying, you are holding fast to my name. You've not denied my faith. You are a faithful witness. You've seen some horrible things happen to people who, because of, of, of their testimony... But here's what those people knew. They knew that to deny the faith in the face of death was to declare that they believed that life in the here and now was better than life with Jesus in eternity. And it was better than having the life that Jesus promised, which he promised couldn't be defeated by a spiritual death. And so what these people are declaring is that Jesus is better than life. We'll face death, we'll hold steadfast, and we'll face death rather than saying that, that, uh, that this life is better than Jesus. So in the cities that we've looked at, there's a strong rivalry between Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Each one of them wants to be known as the center of worship of the, of the Roman emperors and the Roman gods. And they went to great expenses to do that. And idol and emperor worship here in Pergamum is, is really emphasized, and it's a great thing for the people, the citizens of Pergamum. And these Christians in Pergamum, they're holding up well in spite of the satanic stronghold where they live. But we'll see from the next verses that they need to repent of being tolerant of false teaching. Now, there's that word, tolerant. That word, tolerant. We're told to be what? In this, in this world, we, in this politically correct world we live in, what are we told to be? Tolerant. If you're called intolerant in this world, it, it's a slur against you. Look, everyone is allowed to be, to not tolerate things except who? Christians. Christians are the ones that are pointed out and said, if you aren't tolerant of, of the views of this world, then you're not a part of this society. Right now, uh, how many of you have ever been in another part of the country and you've eaten an In-N-Out burger? Nobody? Oh, shoot, right, uh, my, my cheeseburger lover's here. In the past couple of weeks, In-N-Out burgers gave $25,000 to a conservative group who stands for uh, things, uh, they stand against abortion, they're pro-life, they stand against abortion, they stand for the, the, the biblical definition of marriage. And because of that now, 
Other groups have called for a national boycott of In-N-Out Burger, similar to something that we saw with Chick-fil-A not long ago. Now, guess what's happened to In-N-Out Burgers? I read this morning. Their sales have gone through the roof. Yeah. But we're told that we can't be tolerant, that, that we have to be tolerant. And we're the only group that is, that is looked down upon if we don't tolerate the things of this world. Now, here's the turnaround. Jesus says this about them. He says, you're embracing false teaching. In other words, I've said you're doing some things right, but here's the fact, you're doing them half-heartedly. And you need to change and repent. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, I could spend a whole other sermon about Balaam, and I'm not going to do that to you, but go back to Numbers chapter 22 and read through Numbers chapter 25, and I'll describe Balaam this way in one sentence. He was willing to obey God if it benefited him. He was willing to, be, he was willing to obey God only if it benefited him and if it met the sinful desires that he had placed up ahead of God. And, and he introduced idolatry and sexual immorality to Israel through his teachings. And Jesus is pointing out here that this group of Nicolaitans is also introducing idolatry and immorality in the church in Pergamon. Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and, and told them that it was okay for them to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and it was okay for them to practice sexual immorality. So it seems that whoever these Nicolaitans are, their teaching is going to lead this church to embrace sexual immorality and idolatry just like Balaam's teaching did the nation of Israel back in Numbers. This idolatry and immorality is threatening the existence of the church in Pergamum and it is connected to the reference here of Satan's throne in the place where Satan dwells. Jesus is saying, these teachings have caused you to begin to live sinful lives. Now, the teaching here probably said this. We live in this society in Rome, and they practice these things. And it's okay for us to tolerate those things, and even a little bit to put our foot over there and be a part of those things, if it gives us the opportunity maybe to... to to, to tell people about the church we have and about Jesus. Now, does that make sense? Does that make sense that we participate in things or that we practice in things with the intention of saying, hey, I'll dabble in these things so that maybe you'll become, you, you, I might be able to have the opportunity to tell you about Christ. We will live and, and look like you, so, you know, maybe you'll come and be, Embrace the teachings of Christ. The two things are, are opposite of each other and it's just not going to work. The old saying is, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And that's basically what the Nicolaitans may have been teaching here. We're here, we're a part of their world and we're a part of their society. So we might want to look a little bit more like them and be a little bit more like them. Do we see things in our culture today that remind us of that very thing when it comes to the church. Ideas that are taught that will result in our thinking it right to gratify our sinful desires. 
ideas that will result in our thinking it right to give worship to something other than to God alone? Are there people who teach and preach that and put themselves forward as pastors and teachers or authors of Christian books who advocate lifestyles that result in idolatry and immorality? We live in those days, but here's, here's the thing. As believers, Jesus is telling us through what he's writing to the church at Pergamum that we have to be sensitive to what God's word says. We have to be knowledgeable of God's word so that we recognize when someone is teaching us to say that sin is a minimal thing and that sin, we can overlook it. Or to avoid talking about God or what the Bible says and to just enjoy the world that we live in. Now, this idolatry and, and, and this immorality here is no different than what it is today. It's, it's saying that this thing that I put before God or this thing that I take and embrace in my life, I want it to fulfill something. I want it to fulfill a desire in my heart, an emptiness and a loneliness and a longing in my heart. I want it to do what God has promised he would do for me. And there's a longing for intimacy. We live in a lonely society, and people embrace sexual immorality or putting things ahead of God to, fulfill, to try to fill that loneliness and that need for intimacy. And it leads to an immoral and idolatrous life. So Jesus says to them, you have to repent. You have to repent. He said the judgment that, that, I, that is threatened here with that sword that comes from my mouth, I, I, am, I am proclaiming that you have to repent because judgment is coming upon you. If you read what I told you to read, you get to Numbers chapter 25, you'll see that God came to a point to where he wouldn't tolerate what was being taught by Balaam and 24,000 people of the nation of Israel died as a result of them chasing after the idolatry and the false teaching. And so Jesus here, he says, I will war against them. He's saying those who are holding to the false teachings, I will war against you if you don't repent. In other words, you are coming to a place to where someday you will cease to exist as a church. He says if, this, if you don't repent, then this is what's going to happen. It, it indicates that repentance here, the, the leaders of this church were to take a process of discipline with those people who were following the false teaching. And this process of di discipline was to bring them to a place of repentance so that Jesus didn't come in judgment against all of them. Now, why do we call people to repent? We call people to repent because we love them and want to keep them from judgment. Now, here's the, here's the truth of the matter. Dr. Graham, Dr. Jack Graham at Prestonwood Baptist Church is under attack not because of, of his statements that he's made, but because he went a step further and told these people who lived these lifestyles that they lived that they need to what? They need to change. They need to repent and change. They need to give up the sexual immorality that they're living in. 
They need to give up the things that they're doing. They need to repent, and they need to give their lives to Christ. That's at the crux of the matter. Now, I want to, I want to say this morning, I am in a small minority of preachers who still preach repentance. That's the truth. I'm in a minority of people who preach repentance. I, I talk to our former pastor, Brother Philip Cooper, at least once every couple of weeks. And we talk about the fact that the message that we preach is becoming more, it, it becomes more and more unpopular as the days go by. And we talk about the future of the church and, and, and our place in that, in that, in that uh, how, how the church works. And one of two things will happen. Either the church will embrace repentance and we will see a great revival and we will see a great coming to, of people coming to Christ or either we will see a, a complete rejection of the preaching of repentance and those who preach repentance will be replaced in the coming years by what's popular in our culture in churches today. Which is this, you're okay, and it's going to be okay, and you just keep going, and you keep trying, and you keep doing your best, and God's going to give you the victory, and a great big smile, and a great big house. That's where the world is headed. If you don't believe me, go back and read 2 Timothy, and Paul's admonition to Timothy to be faithful to the gospel because there is coming a day to where people won't listen to sound doctrine or sound teaching or sound preaching, but they will replace those people with people who will tell them what? What they want to hear. What they want to hear. Now, Jesus tells them there is a promise if you repent. And he says it's a promise that's written in stone. It's a guarantee. He says the one who conquers, and he says it in the singular. He says that you individually have a responsibility to yourself, and then you have a responsibility to the church you are a part of for the other members of the body. And you have an individual responsibility and a corporate responsibility to, to come to this place of repentance to come to this place of change if you're living a lifestyle that is opposite of what God's Word says. And Jesus says, I will give you hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, these promises that Jesus makes here, He's saying those things that you're piling up in your life to fill, your, to fill the void in your heart, those things that you're looking to, those desires that you're looking to, to meet the needs of your life, I have something better for you. I have something greater for you. This, this need that you have, I have the answer for it, and it is in a relationship with me, and I promise to meet those needs that you have, and he says, I will give you hidden manna. Now, if you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they began to cry out about hunger and God sent them manna from heaven 
to feed them every day. And how often did he send it? He sent it daily to show them, I will provide for you, but you are dependent upon me for that provision. In, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is teaching his people to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Be dependent upon me. Jesus is telling this church here at Pergamum, and he's telling us today that I have a better provision for you than anything of this world offers. I have a better provision for you than the money and the debt that goes along with that money, the materialism, the fitting in, the sexual sins, the immorality, the anything that goes against my word. I have a better solution for you. Don't seek after the things of this world, but come and seek God in relationship. And, I, and he's saying to us, he's saying there's a need in every human heart to have an intimate relationship with others. And he's saying that I will give, I will write your name in a white stone with a new name written on it that only you and God know. In, the, in this world, when we get to heaven and there'll be millions and millions of people there in heaven, we, we see, but we know that God will have a one-on-one -on -one relation. He, he desires to have in the midst of the seven billion people in this world, he desires to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship of intimacy with each and every one of us and to have communication between us and him. God knows the name on the stone, and the one who receives the stone will know the name. And that knowledge and that interaction that no one else shares with God except you and God is the very, the very core of intimacy, and it provides all that we need in this life. Whether we're alone or whether we, uh, we, we may be lonely in our home by ourselves, we may be the type of person that we can be in a crowd of hundreds and still feel alone. But God says, I will provide a relationship with you where you know that you are never alone. Never alone. When I was a lost person, that was the greatest thing that I kept, I kept covered in my life. I looked like the most happy-go-lucky person that you'd ever want to meet. I, I always was laughing and joking and always wanted to have a good time. But I could be in the midst of things, in the greatest crowds of people that you ever wanted to be, and there I was as lonely as anybody that you've ever known. And I tried to fill that loneliness void with everything that the world had to offer. And it was never filled completely until the moment where the Holy Spirit pointed me to Jesus and said, there's the answer. And I, I want to tell you this. There are a lot of lonely moments in the life of a minister. But you want to know something? I am never alone because Jesus Christ has filled the void in that heart. And he has walked with me through every situation in my life. And if there's any promise that I can make to you this morning from this pulpit, it's this, that if you are alone, you don't have to be. God wants to be in relationship with you, and he wants you to understand his promise to the disciples still rings true today. I will go with you even to the end of the age. I will walk with you through this life and through every situation. That's better than any promise that you will get anywhere in this world is to know that you can be in relationship with God in that way. And this morning, 
I would be in error and I would be doing wrong if I didn't give you the opportunity to come and to have that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If I didn't give you the opportunity, as Jesus told the church at Pergamum, to repent, to change, and to go in a different way, and to be in relationship with him, then someday I have to stand before God and I have to give an answer for the reason that I didn't do that. So this morning, as Darren comes, I want you to know that there is an opportunity here for you this morning. The Holy Spirit is already speaking to some people this morning and saying, Jesus is the answer for what's going on in your world. You may be here and you may have begun a relationship with Jesus. And you may be like the church at Pergamum. You may be living and trying to live in two worlds. You may be holding on to some immorality. You may be flirting with sin. Jesus says repent and change and go a different way. Jesus cares about his reputation. Jesus cares about how we as Christians live in the world where we are. He cares about his reputation. And he wants us to live according to his word. Maybe you have here this morning and you know that you need to complete a, a believer's baptism or you need to become a part of a, a fellowship of believers to a local church and this is the church that God has shown you. Whatever it is, you may just need to come and pray at this altar. For those that you know, now is the time to take care of business with God. Father, as we stand, Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to look at your word and what it means, not only to a church 2,000 years ago, but to a church that sits on the corner of Maine and Ladaga in 2018. How does this apply to us, God? Let us open our hearts and our minds, think about the things that you have declared through your word, and look to you as our source of strength and answer. Father, may we give honor and glory to you during this time. May we make decisions that are life-changing in this moment. As we sing in Jesus' name, amen.